On November 17, 1924, Toreichi Kono sat with his legs crossed on a dockside bench, watching the yachts and the sailboats come and go in San Diego Bay. It was a sunny Monday morning. Kono worked for the famous actor, Charlie Chaplin, and he was picking Chaplin up after a weekend away on the Oneida, a yacht owned by the notorious newspaper tycoon, William Randolph Hearst. He'd arrived early to ensure Chaplin didn't have to wait. Chaplin's on-screen character, the Tramp, had made him a fortune. At the time, Chaplin was one of the highest paid actors in Hollywood, and Kono was compensated accordingly for timeliness. But the next boat that arrived wasn't the Oneida. It was a water taxi with two frantic men inside. Kono watched as one tied off the boat, jumped out, and ran toward the harbormaster's office. Something was wrong. Kono recognized the man who stayed behind. His name was Daniel Goodman, a film production manager. He must have been on the yacht with Chaplin, but why had he come back early? Within moments, several deckhands returned to the boat and lifted out a figure on a stretcher. Whoever it was appeared to be shaking and moaning. As the group drew closer, Kono noticed the injured man had blood on his shirt and what looked like a tiny bullet wound on the side of his head. Kono strained to see the victim's face. A chill ran down his spine. It was Thomas Ince, a famous film executive who'd been at the party with Charlie. Something terrible had happened aboard William Randolph Hearst's yacht. Welcome to Unexplained Mysteries, a ParCast original. I'm your host, Molly. And I'm your host, Richard. In life, there's so much we don't know. But in this show, we don't take we don't know for an answer. Every Thursday, we investigate the greatest mysteries of history and life on Earth. You can find episodes of Unexplained Mysteries and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Unexplained Mysteries for free on Spotify, just open the app and type Unexplained Mysteries in the search bar. At ParCast, we're grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. And if you enjoyed today's episode, the best way to help us is to leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. It really does help. This is our first episode on the mysterious death of pioneering film producer Thomas Ince. He died under suspicious circumstances following a weekend of partying on media mogul William Randolph Hearst's yacht. This week, we'll look at Ince and Hearst's backgrounds and we'll examine the infamous yacht party that ended the filmmaker's life. Allegedly, Thomas Ince got indigestion from a combination of salted foods and alcohol and then died of a heart attack. But next week, we'll explore three alternative theories surrounding Ince's death, all of which claim he was shot. Some say it was an accident. Others, that he was viciously murdered in cold blood. 
When movie producer Thomas Ince died in 1924, he was one of the most famous and influential figures in the film industry. He was only 44. His death shocked the public, but it was only one of several Hollywood scandals in the early 1920s. In 1921, comedian Fatty Arbuckle was accused of rape and murder. His subsequent trials created a media frenzy. In 1922, director and actor William Desmond Taylor was murdered by an unknown assailant. The case was never solved. And in 1923, the popular actor Wallace Reed died of a drug overdose shedding light on the industry's growing substance abuse problem. So when Ince died in 1924, the rumor mill kicked into high gear. The public knew he'd spent the weekend aboard William Randolph Hearst's yacht, and they knew how much power and influence Hearst had. He was one of the biggest media executives in the world. He owned a palatial home in San Simeon, California, and his yacht was 200 feet of luxury and vice. It had taken Thomas Ince nearly 25 years of work to get to the point where he'd earned an invite. Thomas Ince's journey to the scandalous world of Hollywood parties began when he was born in 1880 in Newport, Rhode Island. His parents were immigrants from England and both worked as actors. Known as Tom to his friends and family, Ince was the second of three sons. Short and stocky, he was ruggedly handsome with a serious demeanor. He made his Broadway debut while still a teenager in the late 1890s. Over the next decade, he established a reputation as a hard-working comedic actor. Then, during a performance in 1907, he met actress Eleanor Kershaw, known as Nell to her friends. They married in October of that year. After the wedding, Ince began working in the vaudeville circuit while also writing and producing his own plays. After stints with theater companies in Cleveland and Cincinnati, he traveled back to New York in the fall of 1910. Upon his return, money was tight. Nell had recently given birth to their first child, William. Ince needed to find his next job and fast. One afternoon, while hitting the pavement in Times Square, he saw an old actor friend getting out of a car. His name, Joseph Smiley. The two went to lunch. Ince learned that Smiley had started working for a small film studio in New York called the Independent Motion Picture Company, or IMP. At the time, it was New York, not Hollywood, that was home to America's budding movie industry. Ince was dismissive of motion pictures at first. He believed that a movie carried with it none of the fine old ethics and romance of the stage. But with a new baby at home and rent to pay for his Harlem apartment, Ince had no other option. When Smiley offered to help him find a job, he agreed. The two set out to see IMP Studios on 56th Street. When they arrived, Ince immediately recognized actors he knew. After some time in the studio, he was impressed, despite his original reservations. Smiley had a quick conversation with the director, Harry Solter. He told Solter that Ince was an actor and was looking for work. 
Luckily, Salter was aware of Ince's reputation and took a chance on him, without an audition or screen test. He hired Ince to play the main character's husband in a film they were already shooting. Apparently, Ince wowed them. Within a few days, he was offered a permanent job as a company actor. Upon learning that Ince had entered the film industry, other companies took an interest in him. At the time, movies were silent, and Ince wasn't the only actor reluctant to make the switch from stage to screen. Experienced performers were a hotly sought-after commodity. Ince's wife, Nell, was already working for a movie company called Biograph, and her director offered Ince the leading role in another movie. Entitled His New Lid, the picture was filmed and released in November of 1910. It was well-received, and Ince began to realize that film work offered a number of advantages. While plays took place indoors on a man-made set with artificial light, movies could be filmed outdoors using real landscapes and buildings. To a production-minded writer and actor like Ince, the possibilities seemed endless. He used the success of his first film to improve his standing at IMP. He understood that he was too short for most lead roles and didn't want to do any more character work, so Ince convinced his bosses to let him try directing. At the time, directors played the roles of modern producers, screenwriters, and editors. Films were usually shot on one reel and lasted only 15 minutes. They were relatively easy undertakings, but anyone willing to put in extra effort could make a picture that stood out. By December of 1910, Thomas Ince made his directorial debut, and once again, he impressed his employers. The owner of IMP offered Ince a promotion, a permanent position as one of the company's directors. Soon he was assigned to work with one of the time's leading movie actresses, Mary Pickford. Known as America's Sweetheart, she'd recently come to IMP from Biograph. Ince directed Pickford in nearly 40 short movies in 1911, many of which he also wrote. But despite his successes, he wanted even more of a challenge. That fall, he learned that the New York Motion Picture Corporation was moving its operations to California for the winter. The NYMP owned a small satellite studio in Los Angeles called Bison Studios. It included several outdoor sets used to shoot westerns during the East Coast's colder months. As it turned out, they were hiring. Ince interviewed with NYMP to be their lead director for the winter season. They offered him the job for almost three times what IMP paid. In October of 1911, just a year after his introduction to the movie industry, Ince and his family boarded a train for Los Angeles. At the time, westerns made up more than 25% of all the films produced by the movie industry. They were especially popular on the East Coast. Ince directed many. He also set his westerns apart. He shot on location and cast real Native American actors as well as performers from a popular Wild West show to give his films a sense of authenticity. His storylines also grew longer. He was actually one of the first directors to shoot a film on two reels. While he had his skeptics, 
The box office soon put them to rest. Everything Thomas Ince touched made money. As the New York Motion Picture Company grew, Ince's bosses decided to extend his stay in California indefinitely. When he expressed interest in expanding their movie sets, the company approved the purchase of an 18,000-acre plot of land in Santa Ynez Canyon, right along the Pacific Ocean. The spot became known as Inceville. It had multiple sound stages, offices, a cafeteria, and dressing rooms. Among its various sets were a Japanese village, a Puritan settlement, and a pirate ship anchored in the bay. It was the world's first permanent movie studio. With these resources, Ince continued to evolve his work. His innovations included creating the role of the movie producer and hiring three separate people to serve as the director, scriptwriter, and editor for his projects. He pioneered our modern concept of a movie studio, and soon his projects expanded to feature length. He was also one of the first to shoot multiple films at the same time. His studio began producing as many as three movies a week, raking in enormous amounts of money. His success was instrumental in helping to establish Hollywood as the country's new movie capital. But his newfound prominence came with a price. Ince became the subject of celebrity gossip. Though he portrayed himself as an upstanding family man, one rumor suggested he was having an affair with one of Inceville's actresses, a rising star named Margaret Livingston. Another said that he used his position of power to abuse secretaries and other women who worked underneath him. True or not, the rumors didn't seem to have any impact on Ince's marriage or on his wildly successful career. In 1915, Ince and two other well-known producers, D.W. Griffith and Max Sennett, teamed up to create the Triangle Motion Picture Company. Three years later, he sold his stake in Triangle and opened his own independent movie studio in Culver City, which he called the Thomas H. Ince Studios. That studio went on to eventually become part of RKO Radio Pictures, then Culver Studios, sold by Sony to investors in 2004. But in the early 1920s, Ince and his studio were finding it harder and harder to compete. Hollywood studios and production companies were consolidating into major corporations as the demand for bigger, better, and flashier movies grew. Ince valued his creative independence and resisted the change. But he paid a heavy price for his convictions. The industry he'd helped create was now threatening to bankrupt him. Rumors began to spread that Ince was washed up and that his studio was going under. Looking for ways to fight back, Ince opened negotiations with Cosmopolitan Productions. The company had produced several blockbusters in recent years and had just terminated its contract with Paramount Pictures. If he could get Cosmopolitan to shoot at Inns Studios, he might be able to get his finances and his career back on track. The owner of Cosmopolitan Productions was none other than newspaper magnate William Randolph Hearst. In the fall of 1924, Ince began talks with Hearst. 
By November, Hearst invited Ince to a party on his yacht, and Ince couldn't say no. Nobody said no to William Randolph Hearst. Coming up, the rise of William Randolph Hearst and the fall of fact-based journalism. Now, back to the story. 44-year-old Thomas Ince had gone from a niche stage actor to an elite Hollywood producer in less than a decade. Not only did he build and operate the first full-time movie studio in America, but he pioneered many of the production methods we still use today. But by 1924, his independent studio was struggling to compete with his much larger competitors, and rumors spread that he was on the verge of bankruptcy. Desperate to get back on firm financial ground, he began talks with an industry acquaintance, William Randolph Hearst, the owner of Cosmopolitan Productions. Ince hoped to strike a deal with Hearst to have all Cosmopolitan's movies made at Ince's studios. At the time, 61-year-old Hearst was one of the wealthiest and most influential men in America. But Hearst liked to paint a different, humbler picture. He referred to himself as an ordinary American brat. His upbringing was anything but ordinary. Hearst's father was a senator from California who'd made millions during the California gold rush. Born in San Francisco, Hearst attended a boarding school on the East Coast before entering Harvard in the fall of 1882. It was there that he began working in the industry that would make him so powerful. He became the business manager for the school's humor magazine, the Harvard Lampoon. When Hearst began, the Lampoon was spending more money on production costs than it was bringing in. That was unacceptable, and Hearst knew how to turn things around. He solicited local retailers to advertise. He also sent out letters to alumni, encouraging them to purchase subscriptions. During Hearst's tenure, the magazine turned a profit and increased its circulation by 50%. Though Hearst was devoted to the Harvard Lampoon, he was an indifferent student. His poor academic record wasn't helped by his love of practical jokes, like sending a picture of a donkey to his professor with a note. Now there are two jackasses in the room. Another time, he sent a series of gifts to his teachers, all chamber pots with the teachers' names embossed inside the bowls. His pranks didn't win him any support amongst the faculty, and in the fall of his senior year, they voted to expel him for bad behavior and even worse grades. Aside from embarrassing his father, the expulsion had little effect on Hearst. His idol was New York publisher Joseph Pulitzer, the editor of the widely read New York World newspaper. Leaving school only allowed Hearst to put his journalism ambitions and talents to use in the real world. As luck would have it, Hearst's father had purchased the newspaper, the San Francisco Examiner, in 1880. In 1887, he agreed to let Hearst run it. It had been hemorrhaging money for years anyway. Hearst put the same energy into the Examiner that he'd put into the Lampoon. Out in the real world, Hearst was a workhorse. He reportedly put in more than 12 hours every day. 
Taking cues from Pulitzer's New York World, he started by overhauling the examiner's design. He increased the size of the headlines and reduced the clutter of ads on the front page. He was one of the first to realize the importance of the banner headline in large block letters, using it to grab people's attention. He recognized the value of catchphrases as well. He came up with the slogan, Monarch of the Dailies, and searched for the best writers he could find. In time, both Mark Twain and Jack London would have articles printed in the Examiner. Hearst also overhauled the printing equipment and expanded the paper from six to ten pages. He wanted to make the Examiner more like the papers he'd read in Boston and New York. Above all else, Hearst had a knack for knowing what readers wanted. His news stories read like action novels, designed primarily to entertain and tantalize. The reporting of facts became almost secondary. When a hotel was consumed by fire in April of 1887, a large headline blared, Hungry, Frantic Flames. Beneath, the article read, The flames leap madly upon the splendid pleasure palace, encircling Del Monte in their ravenous embrace, leaping higher, higher, higher with desperate desire, Appalled and panic-stricken, the breathless fugitives gaze upon the scene of terror. He also brought a new focus to crime stories, increasing their presence from 10% to nearly 25% of the paper. Investigative reporters played the role of heroes, uncovering criminal conspiracies that were allegedly rampant in the city. Within two years, the Examiner had surpassed its competitors, The Chronicle and The Call, and had become the most widely read paper in San Francisco. By the 1890s, Hearst was looking for opportunities to expand his influence. He wanted more than a newspaper. He wanted an empire. Hearst set his sights on the New York market, where his old idol, Joseph Pulitzer, still loomed large. In 1895, with seven years of journalistic experience under his belt, Hearst purchased the struggling New York Morning Journal. Once again, he began implementing changes, and after only one year, it was successful enough to start publishing an evening edition, but his sights were still set higher. At that time, Joseph Pulitzer's New York World had the biggest circulation in the country. In fact, Many of Hearst's successful strategies had been copied from his competitor. But Hearst made it his mission to surpass Pulitzer. He did anything he could to undermine his former idol and current rival. Raising the quality of the penny paper even forced Pulitzer to follow suit and reduce his prices. As the two papers battled one another, stories became more extravagant, often accompanied by vivid illustrations. The goal was to elicit an emotional reaction rather than simply report the news. People could get news anywhere. If readers wanted something exciting, they had to go to Hearst or Pulitzer. By offering more money and better benefits, Hearst also managed to lure several prominent editors and cartoonists from the New York world. Many brought their entire staff along with them. Following the presidential election of 1896, 
Hearst sold more than 1.5 million copies of his papers in a single day. He stated, This is not only unparalleled in the history of the world, but hitherto undreamed of in the realm of modern journalism. Hearst valued lurid descriptions, half-truths, and outright distortions over fact-based news reporting. One critic, Edwin Lawrence Godkin of The Nation, stated, They talk incessantly, not in the way of instruction, but simply to incite by false news and stimulate savage passions by atrocious suggestions. It was the rise of yellow journalism. Originally named after a cartoon or perhaps a play on words, historians aren't sure. However it came about, the phrase refers to a hyperbolic style of news coverage. But these false, distorted narratives soon had massive consequences. In 1896, Hearst turned his attention to the independence movement in Cuba. At the time, the island was still a colony of Spain, and many Cubans were beginning to tire of Spanish rule there. Despite having no evidence, Hearst claimed that Cuban prisoners were being mistreated, suggesting that the Spanish were using the tactics of the infamous Inquisition of centuries past. Another Hearst newspaper story claimed that Spanish soldiers were strip-searching female rebels. In print, these allegations were accompanied by graphic and lurid illustrations. The fact that most of these atrocities likely never happened was of no interest to Hearst. He peddled the fake news, and the public consumed it. It worked. At one point, Hearst sent a photojournalist to the Cuban capital, Havana. He wanted someone to collect images of the fight for independence. When the photographer got there, he sent a message back to Hearst saying that the city was peaceful. Hearst famously told him to stay put, adding, you furnish the pictures and I'll furnish the war. And believe it or not, he did. In February of 1898, a U.S. battleship called the Maine exploded while docked in Havana Harbor. Though no evidence was ever produced to prove it was sabotage, Hearst's papers claimed this was the first strike in a villainous Spanish attack against the U.S. military. Daily headlines and op-eds regularly called for war. A few months later, the world responded. The U.S. invaded Spanish territories in Cuba, Puerto Rico, and the Philippines. Hearst happily took credit. He ran the headline, How Do You Like the Journal's War? Thanks to antics like this, by the turn of the 20th century, Hearst was one of the most notorious men in America. Having won the New York news market, he purchased newspapers in Chicago, Detroit, Los Angeles, and Boston. He even branched into the magazine business and bought Cosmopolitan, Good Housekeeping, and the fashion magazine Harper's Bazaar. His hunger for power didn't end there. In 1902, he entered politics and was elected to the U.S. House of Representatives as a Democrat. A year later, at the age of 40, Hearst married. And staying true to his ambitions, the marriage was as much about politics as romance. His wife, Millicent Wilson, was just 21 years old. She worked as a dancer and singer on Broadway. 
Hearst had a passing interest in her, but a vested one in her parents, who'd been in vaudeville. Her mother also owned a brothel in New York City. This brothel was connected to the democratic political machine known as Tammany Hall. Any aspiring New York Democrat needed that organization's support if they hoped to win state elections. For Hearst, marrying the daughter of New Yorkers with Tammany Hall connections was a way to ensure future political success. In 1904, with his marriage sealed and a baby on the way, Hearst decided to run for president. He spent $2 million to secure the Democratic nomination. But he was considered a radical liberal, and it was difficult to gain favor over many of the party's more centrist candidates. He eventually lost the nomination to Alton B. Parker and was re-elected to his seat in the House of Representatives that fall. But being a junior representative didn't suit Hearst. He wanted an executive position. So, beginning in 1905, he tried to make it happen. He ran for governor of New York once and twice for mayor. But his notorious reputation as a media mogul and purveyor of yellow journalism came back to haunt him. He lost all three races and finally retired from politics for good in 1909. After his years pursuing public office, Hearst doubled down on expanding his influence in media. In 1909, he created the International News Service, an agency that provided information reports to papers around the world. In 1914, he created Hearst Metrotone News. It was a service that showed newsreels to theatergoers before their movies. It was yet another avenue for spreading Hearst's warped version of the truth. Hearst Metrotone News was his first entry into the world of cinema, but it wouldn't be his last. During the 20s, one in every four Americans got their news from a Hearst-owned company. This gave him an unprecedented amount of influence over politics and public opinion. Together with his wealth, it also made him a target for criticism. As Texas Christian University historian Ben Proctor has stated, Hearst was at times the most hated man in America. That hatred also spread to his mistress, actress Marion Davies. Hearst and Marion had dated for years, even though he was still married to Millicent and had five sons. Allegedly, Hearst really only had eyes for Marion. He showered her with gifts and affection and promised her anything she desired. So when she said she wanted to be a movie star, he made it happen. In 1918, Hearst incorporated Cosmopolitan Productions, naming it after his famous magazine. He signed a deal to use Paramount Pictures Studios. Paramount, in turn, would get the rights to many of the stories in Hearst's publications. Hearst immediately hired Marion and began promoting her as the star of Cosmopolitan Productions. He used his vast network of newspapers, magazines, and newsreels to bring her name and face to the public. Marion was nearly 35 years younger than Hearst, and he was hopelessly devoted to her. As his contract with Paramount expired, Marion introduced Hearst to a man with studio space, 
a man named Thomas Ince, a man who would die after partying on Hearst's yacht. Coming up, we'll explore Thomas Ince's mysterious final hours. Now, back to the story. In 1924, film pioneer Thomas Ince sought new production companies to partner with at his studios in Culver City, California. At the same time, media mogul William Randolph Hearst was looking for a new studio for his company, Cosmopolitan Productions. In November 1924, as the two discussed a potential partnership, Hearst invited Ince for a weekend cruise on his yacht. The Oneida was an impressive 200 feet long and required a crew of 35 sailors. It was the floating counterpart to his elegant and ever-expanding mansion in San Simeon, Hearst Castle. The yacht was due to set sail on Saturday, November 15th. Hearst passed along an invitation to Ince and his wife, promising networking opportunities and celebrity guests. They would leave Los Angeles, sail down to San Diego the first day, and return on Monday morning. Ince's wife, Nell, decided not to go. One of their sons wasn't feeling well, and she knew that Hearst had a reputation for throwing parties filled with sex, booze, and all-night carousing. The country was in the midst of prohibition, but the laws didn't seem to apply on Hearst's yacht. There was always more than enough alcohol on board. Oddly enough, Hearst himself didn't drink. Ever methodical, he liked to play the role of the gracious and paternal host. While others let loose, he never stopped scheming, and he always had a plan in mind for his guests. Including Thomas Ince. Though his wife decided to stay home, Thomas agreed to go to the party. But he would have to miss the first leg of the journey and meet them on Sunday in San Diego. His latest film, The Mirage, was premiering and Ince needed to attend. Hearst concurred. It was a plan. On Saturday, the Oneida set sail and Ince went to his premiere. After the screening, he stopped by his home, kissed his wife and sons goodbye, and took a late train to San Diego. He boarded the Oneida around noon on Sunday, November 16th. It was, coincidentally, his 44th birthday. Accounts of what happened aboard the Oneida are limited and varying. But from what we can gather, it seems that when Ince arrived, he and Hearst immediately got business out of the way. They had lunch together. The talks reportedly went well, and they agreed to have their attorneys start drafting a contract. With work finished, the partying began. Champagne and wine flowed in abundance. Anchored three miles from the coast, they were out of reach of U.S. law. However, like Hearst, Ince also didn't drink. He had a history of ulcers, small sores caused by an overabundance of stomach acid, and often inflamed by stress. Ulcers could be exacerbated by alcohol, so Ince typically abstained. At some point in the afternoon, Ince snacked on salted almonds. It may seem like an inconsequential detail, but given his history of ulcers, sodium-rich foods were strictly off-limits for him. But it was his birthday, and he just agreed to a lucrative contract. A few salted almonds wouldn't kill him. 
As afternoon turned to evening, the guests met in the dining room for supper. Among the 20 people known to have been present were Charlie Chaplin, novelist Eleanor Glynn, Hearst's mistress, Marion Davies, and the actresses Eileen Pringle and Cena Owen. Several others have been rumored to be on board as well, including Margaret Livingston, the popular actress that Ince may have been having an affair with, Abigail Kinsolving, secretary to Marion Davies, and a gossip columnist named Luella Parsons. During dinner, toasts were given in honor of Ince's birthday. Guests also toasted to the health of his eight-year-old son, Richard, whose birthday was coming up at the end of the month. Eleanor Glynn allegedly remarked that it was bad luck for Ince to drink water for a toast. So, despite doctor's orders to steer clear of alcohol, Ince picked up a glass of champagne. It became the first of many. The events are fairly straightforward up to this point. But after dinner, it becomes difficult to separate fact from fiction. The official report, put out, of course, by Hearst newspapers, says that during the night, Ince became ill with indigestion. Champagne and salted almonds had combined to wreak havoc on his ulcers. On Monday morning, Ince decided to go home early to see a doctor. He was accompanied by Daniel Goodman, Hearst's production manager. Goodman was a trained physician, but no longer practiced medicine. Together, they took a water taxi back to San Diego Bay. From there, Goodman escorted Ince onto a train bound for Los Angeles. But his condition worsened, and they decided to disembark at Del Mar, just 20 miles north of San Diego. They went to a hotel, not a hospital, where they were able to allegedly summon a doctor and a nurse. Ince was supposedly stabilized in Del Mar, and his family was notified. They hurried to be with him, bringing his personal physician along. The Ince family stayed the night in Del Mar before returning together to Los Angeles the next day. At home on Tuesday, Ince seemed to recover. But then, in the early morning hours of Wednesday, November 19th, 48 hours after disembarking the Oneida, he had a heart attack. His family was at his side when he died. At least, that's the official version endorsed by Hearst's newspapers. But within hours of his reported death, rumors to the contrary started spreading. Though no copy exists of Wednesday morning's Los Angeles Times, which was not owned by Hearst, its headline supposedly blared, movie producer shot on Hearst's yacht. Charlie Chaplin's assistant, Toriichi Kono, allegedly saw Ince brought out of the boat with what looked like a gunshot wound to his head. He's said to have told his wife, who then told others. If Kono's claim is true, then clearly something other than indigestion was going on. But did Kono really make that allegation? If Kono ever spoke publicly about that weekend, there's no record of it. Those sensational headlines about a movie producer getting shot may have run in the morning. By evening, there was no mention in the Times at all. The story read that Ince had come down with a case of acute indigestion and later died. But that didn't stop the rumors from swirling. And of course, they reached Hearst himself. 
According to film pioneer D.W. Griffith, all you have to do to make Hearst turn white as a ghost is mention Ince's name. There's plenty wrong there, but Hearst is too big to touch. Skeptics have produced several interesting alternative theories about what happened on board the Oneida that fateful weekend. They can be broken down into three distinct scenarios. Perhaps Hearst killed Ince when he discovered Ince had a romantic involvement with Hearst's mistress, Marion Davies, or Ince was mistaken for someone who was involved with Davies. Alternatively, the shooting may have been accidental, involving a drunken scuffle that broke out below deck. Ince wasn't even in the room, but when a gun was fired, it passed through a wall and hit Ince in the head. In this scenario, Hearst covered up the accident because he didn't want reports about a drunken brawl on his yacht during the height of Prohibition, nor did he want to deal with multiple criminal investigations. And our last theory claims that Marion Davies' secretary, Abigail Kinsolving, murdered Thomas Ince. Ince had allegedly sexually assaulted Abigail months earlier, impregnating her. On the yacht, she finally saw the opportunity for revenge. Wanting to avoid a scandal, Hearst hushed it all up. Next week, we'll explore these theories in detail. We'll try to determine once and for all what really happened aboard the yacht that would soon earn the morbid nickname William Randolph's Hearst. Thanks again for tuning in to Unexplained Mysteries. We will be back Thursday with Part 2 of The Death of Thomas Ince. For more information on Ince, amongst the many sources we used, we found Thomas Ince, Hollywood's independent pioneer by Brian Taves, and True Crime, Timeless Classics by Ryan White, extremely helpful to our research. You can find all episodes of Unexplained Mysteries and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite ParCast originals like Unexplained Mysteries for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Unexplained Mysteries on Spotify, just open the app and type Unexplained Mysteries in the search bar. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. We'll see you next time. See you next Thursday. And remember, never take we don't know for an answer. Unexplained Mysteries was created by Max Cutler and is a ParCast Studios original. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler. Sound design by Anthony Valsic, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Travis Clark. This episode of Unexplained Mysteries was written by Scott Christmas, with writing assistance by Drew Cole, and stars Molly Brandenburg and Richard Rosner.